Let's turn to God's word together as we continue our series in Romans. We've got to Romans chapter 10 and verse 5. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. I've looked under chairs. I've looked under tables. I've tried to find the key to 50 million fables. They call me the seeker. I've been searching low and high. I won't get to get what I'm after till the day I die. So sang the who back in the day, and I bet you're really relieved that I didn't sing it. It's a song entitled The Seeker, and I've always find it, found it quite insightful, actually. Lots of people have spent a lot of time seeking in all kinds of directions. I myself have spent far too much time in my life seeking for things that were in an obvious place all along, including this morning. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. How sad, though, when, that when this becomes true of the most important aspect of life altogether, indeed of life itself. In chapter 10, verse 4, Paul said this, you remember for last week, Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The end, the goal, the purpose of the law uh, the law was designed to point to Christ all along. That's what Paul is saying. This is the law of Moses. We're talking about the law that's laid down in the Old Testament for the Jews to follow. Uh, but Paul now wants to show us that actually, uh, he wants to show us this by arguing from the law itself. He wants to show us that the law knew this all along. And he starts by quoting from Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 18 verse 5, and we have it there in verse 5. Uh, and he, Paul says, he's describing the righteousness that is by the law. He says, the man who does these things will live by them. And uh, this is what he means here is if the law was the end to itself, if the law was the be all and end all, then this is how it must work. That the only hope of us living in good standing with God for eternity would be by obeying the law perfectly. The trouble is, 
that as Paul has spelt out in the first three chapters of uh, Romans, sinful human beings just cannot do that. We cannot attain our own righteousness, our good standing with God. We can't earn it. We all fall short. But Paul now says, that's not the only thing the law said. As it said that, the law also said other things. The law itself pointed beyond itself. And he goes on to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, It's the time when Israel had traveled through the wilderness for 40 years and now they're standing on the borders of the promised land and Moses is preaching to them. He's expounding the law given to them 40 years before and he's now saying, look, don't forget the law. This is how you are to live in the land. If you carefully follow these commands, the Lord will bless you. But if you don't, he lays out the curses that would come upon them. He does that uh, in chapters 28 and 29. And the greatest curse of all is exile, that, that if they go on disobeying God, they will be ejected, thrown out of the promised land. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. But Moses, prophetically looking forward to that, says this in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 3 of that chapter, when all these blessings and cursings I, uh, curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, Wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Now in Paul's day, There were, of course, many Jews living in the promised land, the area recognized as the promised land. Their ancestors had returned from exile. They'd gone into exile and some of them, not all of them at all, but a few of them had returned from exile. However, in Paul's day and in Jesus' day, of course, the land was being ruled over by the Romans. They didn't have control of their own land. And so many Jews concluded that actually, although they were physically in the promised land, They were actually still effectively in exile. But Moses is envisioning here a day when Israel would turn back to God and so be restored. He says their hearts will be transformed. In verse 6 of Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and and live He's talking about, um, if you like, heart surgery to change their hearts so that their hearts want to obey God instead of wanting to go the other way. And then they're enabled to love God with all their hearts and souls, which of course is the great purpose of the law, the great summary of the law. Every law is aimed at that, us loving God and loving our neighbors. Moses goes on in in verse 11 of uh, Deuteronomy 30. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Now that's very interesting because that seems to contradict what Paul has said in the letter to the Romans. It tells us how how keeping the law is too difficult for us. 
Well, Moses goes on to say this, verse 12 to 15, it's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend to heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it, nor is it beyond the sea so that you'll have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction for I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to keep his commands decrees and laws that you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess now it would be odd wouldn't it for Paul to quote these words from Deuteronomy if they really did contradict his message but Moses words are prophetic They are looking forward to the end purpose of the law. You know, as teachers of the law studied the law over the years, they developed ever more complicated ways of explaining or applying the law. The Pharisees in particular did so much of this. They were constantly trying to cover every eventuality with case law so that uh, people would know exactly what they should do in a given situation. So they had layer upon layer upon layer of extra laws added in to the law. Or they would do what we might call hedging the law, which is like putting a, a fence up around the law so you can't even get close to, the, to, to, to transgressing the law. Think of it like this. Imagine you're driving along and you enter a, uh, a 30 mile an hour speed limit area. And you think, well, yes, okay, I'll I'll go down to 30. And they think, yes, but hold on. Drive at 20 or even 15 just to make sure I'm nowhere near breaking the law. That's what the Pharisees did. They hedged the law in that way. Um, So they made sure they they would never cross the line, go across the line. Always developing extra layers of requirements. And so it was getting ever more complicated. It was like having to go to the far reaches of of, of, of the universe to try and obey the law. The trouble was, as they did that, they started missing the point of those laws all along. They started missing the spirit of the law all along. Their lives became about this narrow legalistic observance rather than a genuine passionate love for the Lord. They became fixated on the external rather than the internal state of their hearts trying to obey the law, completely obey the law, became ever more complicated. Consequently, different uh, branches of Judaism, more more mystical branches of Judaism developed, which were all about observing certain practices, fasting maybe, observing certain days, that, that, that would enable the person observing them to be taken up into the higher realms of spirituality, being taken up into the heights or plumbing the depths. Deuteronomy talks of crossing the seas rather than plumbing the depths, whereas when Paul quotes it, he's quoting more the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Greek translation, the idea of the seas, I think, got translated into the depths, the deeps, and uh, hence the version that Paul quotes. But Paul says, back in uh, Romans 10, Paul says, no, You don't have to do that. Moses himself said you wouldn't have to go searching high and low for this righteousness. There is no need to climb a stairway to heaven to reach it. There's no need to plumb the depths 
Moses himself said, this good standing with God, this life-giving relationship is not far away from us. And given that God knew full well how impossible people would find it to keep God's law, then surely Moses must have been thinking about the reality that the law pointed to all along. Here he's pointing beyond Israel's failure to obey God and their subsequent exile. He's pointing to a time when their hearts will be renewed and they will return. And Paul's point is, this is possible precisely because of what Christ has brought us. All along, this is what the law pointed forward to. We don't have to ascend into heaven to get our righteousness because Christ has come down. God drawing near in the person of his son. We don't have to plumb the depths. Maybe Paul has in mind the the punishment our sins deserve. But we don't have to precisely because Christ has plumbed the depths for us. And more than that, he's been raised up again. As Paul said earlier in Romans Romans chapter 4, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, our vindication. We don't have to go searching all over the place for salvation. Christ has brought it to our door. How then can can we be saved? Well, he tells us very clearly. Verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth... Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a great verse to memorize. So first of all, he says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You know, that's more than just a catchy line in all those worship songs. To say that Jesus is Lord, well, first of all, it's to declare him as God, as Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Israel, the God who came down from heaven to us. Now, you might argue, and and some people will argue, that yes, but the word Lord there, the Greek word Lord there, that could be used simply to refer to a master, even a human master. Well, that is true of the, the word kurios. But throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament... That word, Lord, kurios, is used to refer to the Lord God himself, to Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. And in the context of this Deuteronomy quotation, let us be in no doubt that Paul means Jesus is Yahweh. He is the one true God. Now, that wasn't easy for Jews to accept, of course. Staunch believers in one God, in order to take this on board, their monotheism had to adjust to take on board the concept of the Trinity, that God can be both up there and down here amongst us at the same time. But this is the only way to be righteous, to be saved, to recognize Jesus as the righteousness of God come down to us. The Gentiles, of course, it was a struggle for the Jews. Well, it was a struggle for the Gentiles too, the non-Jews, because they had to abandon their belief in polytheism, in more than one God, just as we do. 
when we declare Jesus is Lord, we have to abandon our reliance on anything other than him, the things we tend to make gods. Indeed, this was very uh, sharp and pointed in Rome because the orthodox declaration in Roman society was Caesar is Lord. That's what you had to declare to get on in Roman society. If you wanted a position of public influence, you're expected to acknowledge your ultimate allegiance to Caesar. But to say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. He is not Lord. He does not deserve our ultimate allegiance. Our ultimate loyalty has to be to Jesus if we are to be saved which we have to confess with our mouths openly and clearly. Secondly, says Paul, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Primarily, of course, this means believing in your heart that Jesus is still alive. That this is no dead philosopher or religious leader that we're honouring. He is alive. We're recognizing that King Jesus is alive, having truly died, which means that King Jesus has defeated the greatest enemy, death itself. The thing that ultimately would threaten to cut us off from a good standing, a living and ongoing relationship with God. Jesus has defeated death. Also, if he is alive, then God has vindicated him. God has said, yes, all that Jesus said, all that Jesus did has my seal. He was from me, from being cursed and cut off as he hung on the cross bearing our sin. By raising him up, God has declared a huge yes over Jesus. Yes, he has paid the price for our sin. He has exhausted the curse. If he hadn't, he'd still be paying the price in the grave. By believing that God raised him from the dead, we believe actually that God has indeed dealt with our sin because he was bearing our sin in the grave. Christ our Lord. And so we follow him now unreservedly. And then we are saved. Note that the two go together, heart belief and mouth confession. Clearly, it's possible to say Jesus is Lord and not really mean it. Sadly, many sing those very words Sunday by Sunday, but then go and live their lives as if Jesus were dead. We need this heart transformation, which was the very thing that Moses promised back in Deuteronomy 6, that circumcision of the hearts, so that we may love him with all our Heart and soul, heart devotion, that's the very thing that the law pointed to all along. But private heart devotion is not in itself enough either. We need the public declaration, Jesus is Lord. Now, we are con- this is hard for us because we're conditioned to believe that faith, generally speaking, is a very personal thing and we're all allowed our private faiths and it's best not if we don't best if we don't talk about it too much well okay faith is personal in the sense that it's between me and god but personal is really not the same as private we do need to own jesus publicly 
if we want him to save us. He has come down and identified him, us, himself with us in order to save us. And for us to be saved, we have to identify ourselves with him. We have to be publicly on his team. I don't know if you've had the experience of uh, watching a football match in the wrong end of a stadium. You know, you're in with the home supporters, but actually you're supporting the away team. I've actually had the bizarre opposite experience of being with the away supporters and supporting the home team. That's really bizarre. But um, uh, what do you do? Well, you don't wear the shirt, do you, if you're in that situation? And you don't cheer when your team scores for fear of attracting the odd negative comment, I guess. But we cannot be like that with Jesus. We have to wear his team shirt in public. He came down and identified with us, as I said. There is no salvation for us unless we openly and publicly identify with him. Now, I I appreciate, as I say this, that there are situations in the world where people are really almost unable to do that. I think of situations where Muslims have become secret believers in Christ and they remain secret for fear of their very lives. Now, I'm not judging them at all in that situation. I really am not. But let's be honest, that's not the situation for us at Kennet Valley. We have no reason for not owning Jesus clearly and openly. And this is why the act of baptism is so important. In fact, many people think this phrase that Paul has got here, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that this was the baptismal formulae of the time. This is what they would declare as they were baptized. This is why the act of baptism is so important. We are fond of saying in our church tradition, because of the way baptism has been abused throughout the century, we are fond of saying baptism doesn't save you. Well, no more it does in the sense that there's nothing magic in the waters, that going through those waters somehow um, instills you with, with saving faith in a way that you didn't have before. That's true. But Paul is absolutely serious here. Neither can there be, according to Paul here, neither can there be any salvation not accompanied by an open declaration of our allegiance to Christ which is precisely what baptism is. It is the moment when we get off the fence and publicly declare our faith. It is, in the, in the New Testament, it is part of that conversion process. You repent in your heart, you have faith, you're baptized. It's the get on up out of your seat moment. Show that you've made this commitment moment. And so if you haven't been baptized as a believer, I simply ask you this, why not? Why haven't you? Is it because you are still hoping to fly under the radar with your Christian faith? Because if that's the case, beware Paul's words. And if you want to talk about baptism, do contact me. I know it's not easy to even conceive it at the moment, but it, is a, it, it, will, it, it can be a possibility, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, and we can start talking about it. Um, but these two things have to go together, mouth confession and heart 
belief. Heart transformation leading to clear and open declaration and the following of Jesus. That is the response we are to make in order to receive this gift of salvation. Two corollaries flow from that, two conclusions from that that Paul makes. First of all, salvation really is near. Salvation is near and easily accessible, as the scripture says. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. I don't know if you have friends like I have who have said to me over the years, various times, oh, I wish I had your faith. I wish I could believe like you do. I'd love to have your commitment. And you're thinking, well, all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is reach out and grab Christ and hold on to him. You don't have to somehow, you know, try and work it up inside you. You just have to hear the word and respond, turn and accept. We don't have to search high and low. We don't have to do years of penance. We don't have to pull our own socks up or sort ourselves out before turning to Christ again. That's what a lot of people think. Yeah, I can see there's something in it, but my life at the moment, I couldn't come to God like this. I'll go away and work on it, and then I'll come to God. As if we could. The whole point of coming to God is we can't do that. I imagine God just thinking, oh, for goodness sake. Come on, come to me. I can sort it out. Not straight away, but bit by bit, I'll transform you into the likeness of Christ. Turn to him. Don't wait to try and sort it out. Turn to him. Put your faith in him. And he says, we will not be put to shame. Secondly, and crucially to the whole letter, anyone can be saved. Therefore, because salvation is near to all, anyone can be saved. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That was the huge um, tribal uh, division that Paul faced there in Rome as he talked to the Roman Christians. There is no difference between Jew and non-Jew. The same Lord is Lord of all. That's a nod to the Jewish Shema there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's the same Lord. He is one. And he richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because God has made salvation so accessible, then then anyone can be saved, Jew or Gentile. And so Paul can rejoice that Gentiles have found faith in these Roman churches. And he can also pray passionately, knowing that there's still opportunity for those currently unbelieving Jews to turn and be saved. Just as it said, just as it imagined in Deuteronomy. And so it is fitting, this is absolutely fitting, that this way of salvation is for all, because the same Lord is Lord of all. If there truly is only one God who made everything... Do you see how it would undermine his oneness, his God of everythingness, if there were different pathways for people to be saved, different ways for people to be saved? Any salvation plan that ultimately divides people up along ethnic lines or any other lines would undermine the very monotheism that the Jews cherished. He is the Lord of all. Therefore, it is entirely consistent that this salvation should be open to all. 
which is very bad news for any racists anticipating heaven, isn't it? Because they are absolutely going to hate it there. But Paul means this open to all. All kinds of people, all kinds of upbringing, all kinds of life experience. How many people think, oh, I'm just, my life, I'm just too, I've done too many things to come to God. I've done this, I've done that. I can never find my way. It doesn't take God by surprise. He's not shocked by it. He's seen it all along and he's loved you all along. This path is open to you. Whatever your background, whatever your situation, open to all, open to you. Do you know his rich blessing because you've called on him in repentance and faith? If not, what stops you? Where are you going to look for this righteousness? Is this your determination to sort out your own righteousness? Are you too proud to admit that you can't do it and you need God's help? You never will do it. Or your determination may be to fly under the radar, to enjoy what the world offers before you commit openly and wholeheartedly to Christ. Friend, that is such a perilous path. Firstly, because your heart will harden. It'll get harder and harder and harder to consider turning to Christ. Secondly, you never know how, long, how many days you have. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And thirdly, you rob yourself today of the blessing, the life that Moses and Paul talked about. Life and prosperity or death and destruction, Moses said. He put out the choice to these people back in Deuteronomy. You choose, he said. And Paul is saying the same thing here now. You choose. Why not choose now? To confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we can't find our own way up to heaven. We can't plunge into the depths and bear the punishment of our own sin and survive. I thank you so much that we don't have to do either of those. Because Jesus has come from heaven and Jesus has plumbed the depths for us. And you've raised him up again. And our forgiveness of sins is in him. We, all we have to do is to look and believe and look and live. And Father, that's not something we, in a sense, we do it once and we're saved, of course. But in another sense, we go on day by day making that that heart decision to carry on following Christ. Lord, help us. Help us to realize he has the words of eternal life. To whom else should we go? And encourage us to hang on to him and carry on walking with him. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing, um, as we close, that wonderful hymn, And Can It Be?